Great singing. Thank you so much. If you have your Bible, please turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. This is not the Christmas story in the way that you think of the Christmas story, and yet it is all the Christmas story. So I hope that you will uh, follow along if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's what apps were made for. Look it, uh, look it up on your smartphone. See what you can get there. We're talking about the organic God. Again, just to, to kind of fill in where we're going with that, organic in the sense that we cut through the pollution. We cut through all of the additives. We cut through the things that we have added to who God is. We're going back to see what God says about himself. Would you want someone else to describe you, and as you're being described, you realize that they have added things that were not original? If, you wanted, if someone described you, and they put those things in that were not true about you, would, would you like that? Well, I said that to somebody, and they said, well, it depends on how they describe me. If they said I'm 6'4", and I weigh 195 pounds, and I started for the 49ers, I guess I would be okay with that. That's not usually how they describe us if they're describing us and they're getting it wrong. And so many times what we've described about God is not what he has said about himself, and we, he would rather tell you what he thinks about himself. And today we're looking at the topic of what do you love about Jesus? What do you love about Jesus? And, and I really came upon this title. The, the whole concept of the organic God, of, of course, is from Margaret Feinberg's little book, The Organic God. But when I ran across, I ran across an article about a pastor by the name of Jay. They did not give his last name. I could not find his church uh, in, Arv in Arvada, uh, Colorado. It's a church plant. It's a relatively new church. They have 100 people in the church. And this was in, a, in one of the pastor quarterlies that I get. And as I was reading this about this, I was astounded because most church plants, new churches, start with people from other churches. They start with a group that came from a mother church and, and, or whatever. The majority of people in a new church typically are new, not new Christians. But 78 out of the 100 people who are attending this church in Arvada, Colorado, are new believers. And 75 of the 78 have been led to the Lord by Jay, the pastor of this church in a period of about 18 months. I mean, this is just astounding to think uh, of that. And so this article is asking this pastor, how did you win so many people to Jesus? And he said, it's simple. I, I go to Starbucks, I go to other places where people hang out, and I open my Bible and I begin to study. And when they come up and say, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm just reading this book about this guy, about Jesus Christ, and I have a question for you. What do you love the most about Jesus. What do you love about Jesus? And I thought, well, how does that get them to salvation? He says, it opens a conversation. And in the midst of the conversation, I can tell them what I love the most. And in the article, they asked him, what was the most intriguing answer? He said, one that's popped up several times, and it's not something that immediately comes to my mind, but I love how beautiful Jesus is. Have you seen Jesus? Well, I haven't seen Jesus, not personally, not with my own eyes. I mean, I've, I've seen a depiction. In Isaiah 53, too, it says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. In the prophecy of the Messiah, it says there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And when we think of how beautiful someone is, we normally, uh, the Webster's Dictionary says, beauty is qualities that give pleasure to the senses. Or in our vernacular, in our terminology, what's hot and what's not. That's what's beautiful. What's hot is beautiful, and what's not is not beautiful. It's ugly. And, and Jay said, when they started talking about how beautiful Jesus was, I thought, you don't understand who Jesus is. But he said, the more I thought about it, the more I had to agree with how beautiful Jesus is. 
And as I was thinking on that, I ran across this passage in Psalm 27, 4. Look at what it says. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. The chances are very few of us got up this morning and said, wow, I want to go to the church and see how beautiful Jesus is. And yet that should be our goal. And too many times we're arriving at church, we're going through this whole process of worship, we're going through this whole process of attending church, and it's not really what it needs to be. We love to see things sometimes that work the way we want them to work, but sometimes we miss the other part of that. Now, I just noticed something, and I'm going to stop the message because I have to do this. Because I just see, saw that Chelsea and Isaac are here with a new baby. And I love new babies. Great to see the new baby. Stand up. Bring that, show that baby off. We gave names, but say it out loud. Brighton. I love that. Love that. Beautiful. Little hair going on there. I love that. Beautiful baby. Thank you so much. Are you, are you thrilled with another baby in the church, folks? That's awesome. As much as you love the beauty of a baby, do you love the beauty of Jesus? You notice the segue there, how smooth that was. And I'm sorry, I, just, I didn't see you before, and I saw you, and I thought, we've got to introduce that baby. What keeps us from loving Jesus Christ? What is it that's blocking us? How can we rekindle that love? When we come to church, it ought to be focused on who is Jesus, why do I love him, how can I serve him, what's my relationship like with him? And I think there are some obstacles. And I want to look at a a couple of stories in Luke 18 and have God tell us what is breaking off that love relationship, what are some barriers to loving him, and how we can fix those. Look at Luke 18, 18 through 27, and the first question is, what are some obstacles? What are some obstacles to loving Jesus? This is a story, you may know it. Look at verse 18, Luke 18, 18, a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Mark says literally that he fell on his knees before the Lord and asked the question. Verse 19, why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good in the way that this young man used the term good. No one is good except God alone. It means completely pure with with no flaw. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy. He said, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's been a huge amount of controversy over that verse. There are people, I know when I was a, a kid, my dad used to teach that there was a, 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 a gate in, in Jerusalem called the eye of the camel, and the camel had to get on its knees, and it had to crawl through that gate in order to get in Jerusalem. So when we crawl on our knees to get to the Lord, when we humble ourselves, that's when we find God. Isn't that a great thing? I mean, I love to hear that. It's absolutely not true, but that's what a lot of people were taught. There is no, that you can search any historical record that you want, there is no gate that was ever called the eye of the needle. 
I think Jesus is talking to the disciples and he says, you see that camel over there? It'd be easier for that camel to go, and you see that woman over there stitching, it'd be easier for that camel to go through the eye of that needle than it would be for a rich man to enter heaven. Look at verse 26. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is difficult with men? Is that what he says? No. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What barriers are there for us to love Jesus? What causes us to, to stop loving him? And, and again, let me just ask you some questions that we get from this, this, what we call the rich young ruler. Am I depending on parentage? A am I depending on the family that I was born into, my ancestry.com? Is that what I'm depending on? I've checked it out in my ancestors and I know who they are. And man, I come from good stock and so God's going to want me. Jesus does not waste time with this young man. He comes in, he obviously knows a little bit about the young man. We never have the name, but we have plenty of information about him. And he says, listen, don't call me good. Don't call me morally pure. Don't call me perfect unless you are going to reference me as God. He, I mean, he, he doesn't let the, the young man get by with anything. And then we were told some information about the young man. He was a ruler, probably a ruler in a, in a local synagogue. And he had great wealth. Matthew, the, the parallel account in Matthew 19, 16 through 23, says he was a young man. And that's a term that's always applied of, of men in their 20s. So he was a young man. And again, as I referenced in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22, it says he fell on his knees before the Lord as he asked the question. So he's sincere. He's not some brash, arrogant young man. He comes in sincerely asking this question. And Jesus knew the man had studied the Mosaic Law. He said, you know the commandments. You come from the right kind of home. Your parents taught you well. Your parents sent you to the Christian school. Okay, that would be the Jewish school. But, but you know the Torah. You know the, the Old Testament. You know the, the commandments. You know these things. And the young man knew his Bible. Right family, right school, right text. But was he trusting in his lineage? in his parentage to make a difference. Have you ever done that? Have you ever trusted in, in who you are to make a difference? When I was a very young man, uh, Kathy and I, we got married. I was 21 and we got married. And, and uh, when Chris was born shortly thereafter, uh, we, you know, she was in the hospital. I went to visit her and they were doing work on the parking structure. There was no place to park, so I parked on the street. There was no place to park around this hospital, St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. And so I looked and looked, finally found a parking space, but I was going this direction and saw it on the opposite side. So I did a U-turn and parked in this place, perfectly good space. Nobody else was parked there. Praise God, my prayer was answered. I went in. When I came out, there was a parking ticket. Turns out if I'd gone a little further, there was a no parking on this whole block sign at the very corner. But since I did the U-turn, I missed that. And I thought about going and fighting it, but it was $18, and that was a huge amount of money back then, 30-something years ago. But I decided I would pay the fine. I sent the fine in, didn't think a thing about it until my dad was almost arrested on a warrant for not paying a parking ticket. Turned out the car was still registered in my dad's name, not in my name. So when the parking ticket came through, they didn't come to arrest me. They came to arrest my father. My father had a very short conversation with the police officer and said, this is my son's car, not mine. If you want to arrest somebody, here's his address. Go arrest him. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dad. And the police officer came down. 
Now, what I argued to the police officer is, I am the pastor's son. I am a pastor myself. I, I am a good man of good... Do you think that's what I argued? No, I went and got the canceled check because the payment had been paid in full. But too many times, we're still depending on who we are. I go to that church. I, you know, I'm, I'm from the right family. I have the right stock. I have the right stuff. So I must be the right guy. And the Lord says... No, you need to argue on one merit only. That's Jesus Christ paid it all. When he went to the cross and he stretched out his arms, he died for you and he died for me. And if you're trusting in anything other than that, it blocks the way that you can love Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 1, there's another story, same idea. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He approaches Jesus, and he says a very similar thing. He says, teacher, great rabbi, we know that you are sent from God. Nobody could do the things you're doing unless they were sent from God. And Jesus cuts him off just like he does the young man. This is an older man, a very religious man. Again, he is, we know he's the Jewish ruling council. He comes from very good stock. And Jesus cuts him off and he says, listen, you understand, you need to be born again. You're in the wrong family. You need to be born from above. Here's the second one. Am I relying on position? The young man was not only relying, I think, on his parentage, but he was relying on position. He was a ruler, probably in the synagogue. There was one temple, only one temple in Israel. That was where? That was in Jerusalem. That was the only place you could come and bring sacrifices and worship. But a lot of the local cities had synagogues. Now, it was not a church like we think of church. It was a teaching place, but it was also the center for their government, their social life, their weddings, their their funerals, their bar mitzvahs. All of these things took place in the synagogue. It was a center of life. If you were the ruler of the synagogue, you had a lot of power. You were the mayor of the town. You had a lot of clout. So not only is he from from the right family, but he has a lot of power. Sometimes we're easily starstruck, aren't we? Sometimes you see somebody, you, you, you see them, and you, and you realize how famous they are. We were listening to some Christmas music this morning, and Dolly Parton was singing with Selah. Did I get that right? Selah. They, she was singing the song. I thought, why would they get Dolly Parton? And we realized she probably wrote this Christmas song, but this Christian group got this huge country star to, to sing on their thing. Because, you know, names mean something, and and position means something, and titles mean something. Here's the problem. Sometimes we begin to believe our own press. Sometimes we, if, if we get a position, we get a title, we begin to believe and we begin to well up within ourselves that I have this authority, I have this title. And it, should, and it should mean something. We begin to believe other people's praise when they come by and say, to, you know, as a pastor, pastor, you know, wonderful sermon. No one's ever actually said that. But if they did, I, it, would, you know, it would feel really good. And this accolade and this, I'm, don't do that. I'm just, I'm just kidding you. But this, these, this affirmation makes us believe that somehow God's lucky to have us. The Lord says, no, that's not what it's all about. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul, toward the end of his life, says, Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul, to the day he died, believed that as a murderer he didn't deserve anything because he stood there and held the clothes while they killed Saul. 
He gave full assent. Not only that, he got letters and he went. He was on his way to Damascus. And he says that he was a murderer. So we assume that he brought Christians in and had them executed in the name of the, the rabbis, the name of the synagogue, the name of the, the temple. And Paul believed to the very end that he was not worth anything. There are related examples of, of how humble those are who, who came to the Lord and, and, and be, as they got close to the Lord and realized who he was, how much it humbled them. And see, when we have position, when we have title, when we get close to the Lord, we, just, we get kind of puffed up and we feel pretty good about ourselves. I think it's kind of interesting. I was reading a, a funny story. It, it, it appears that a very famous actor, Clint Eastwood, was, was out, in, out and about during some Christmas shopping and there were some tourists that were coming by and they were standing there in front of Grauman's Chinese uh, Theater and, and as they were standing there, they saw Clint Eastwood and they said, oh, would you, would you take a picture? And he, he says, well, I don't normally, but I will. And he said, where would you like me to stand? They said, stand over here, hold the camera and take the picture of us. <laughs> Woo. And it happened time and time again. There's a story in, in the same book, Luke chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter's out fishing. The Lord needs some place to, to stand, and, and the crowd keeps pushing him to the Sea of Galilee. He finally gets in Peter's book and he, boat, and he, and he books out just a little bit from the shore, and he's standing there or sitting there in the boat, and he's teaching. And finally he says when they're all done, hey, how was your fishing last night? And Peter said, we didn't catch anything. And he says, push the boat out, and let's go get some fish. And Peter says... You know, you're a great rabbi, you're a great teacher, but I'm a great fisherman. This isn't the time of day, this is not the place, this is not the right, there's nothing right about this, but since you said it, let me just prove to you how much I know about fishing. So they go out, and it says the nets, when they let them down, are so full of fish that they begin to break, and they pull another boat. He yells back to shore, gets a second boat, and it says in Luke chapter 5 that his boat was sinking, and the second boat was sinking from the catch of fish. Look at the reaction when Simon Peter saw this. He fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. You'll love Jesus more when you stop looking at the position that you have. Here's the third thing that may be a barrier, an obstacle. Am I focused on a point system? Why point the man to the Old Testament law? Why didn't Jesus talk to him about grace? Because he knew that this guy was wrapped up in this whole, this whole thing of, of, of the commandments, and he was not being honest with himself. When he said, I've kept all of these commandments from the time I was a little boy. You know, there's a theological term for that. It's called baloney. Didn't happen. And you say, how can you know that, Pastor? Because when the Lord talks to him about selling his things, he doesn't want to do it. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Jesus later talks about it. But even in the first commandment, you'll have no other God before me. You will not have any idol before me. The tenth commandment is not to covet what someone else has. Colossians chapter 3, 5, it says, Put to death all of these evil things, and one of them is greed, and it says, which is idolatry? So Christianity is not about keeping score. It's not about keeping the Ten Commandments. You will never earn your salvation by keeping the commandments. It's not about keeping score. We count sins. We compare our score with others. There was a, it's, it's one of my favorite old jokes. You've probably heard it before, but I had this dream. This is a joke. That's the warning part of it, okay? I had a dream. I went to heaven. 
And Peter met me at the gate, and he was showing me through all the different rooms in heaven, and there was this beautiful, gorgeous room, and it had clocks all over the walls in this room. And I said to Peter, you know, every, every clock had a name underneath it, and everyone was at a different time. And I said, I don't understand the whole deal with the name and the clocks, and what's that all about? And Peter said, these are not actually clocks, they're sin meters. It, it measures how much you have sinned. I said, really? And I saw Kevin Moore's clock there. It was at 1.30. And I thought, wow, Kevin's lived a lot of years. He's an old dude. And 1.30, that's really pretty good. And I saw Gary Dixon's clock there. It was at 4.25. I still thought, you know, Gary, he's older than dirt. I mean, 4.25 really is pretty good. I, you know, I was really proud of him. And I saw Vaughn Cartwright's clock there. I got a little worried. Vaughn's was at 11 and 11.15. And I thought, man, that's a lot of sins. You know, one click for every second, 11.15, that's, man, that's a lot of sins. And I noticed my clock was not there, and I said, Peter, where's my clock? He says, what's your name again? I said, George Knight. And he said, oh, George Knight, we keep your clock in the office and use it as a fan. It's not about keeping count. It's not about keeping count. And the Lord knew that, and this young man did not know that. Luke 18, 11 says the Pharisees stood up. Jesus knew that this was in the heart of a lot of the Pharisees. The Pharisees stood up and prayed about about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You see, if, if, if everything that I do in my life is about keeping score, we've talked about this in marriage before. If you're in a marriage and, and you clean the dishes, you wash the dishes, you, you make the beds, or you help with the laundry, or you do some household chores, or, or you change a diaper, come on, for guys, that's a huge deal. If you do all of these things just so that you can say to your wife, I've done these 37 things, look how good a score I've kept, then you've missed the whole meaning of relationship. That's not what it's all about. The Lord says to this young man, sell all that you have and then follow me. Come to me, all ye who are weary and and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I am meek and lowly of heart and, and you'll find rest for your Come to me. You'll find rest for your souls in me. He wants us to come to him. And the truth is, for most of us, we get to a point where we're headed to Jesus, but somewhere along the line we, we go, go in orbit around him. We don't actually come to him. We have this system, and we system, systematically go around him, and while we're in orbit, we're checking other people's orbits to see if they're further away than we are. There's nothing wrong with, around, wrong with orbiting around the Son of God Except that's not what he asks us. He asks us to come to him. So what's the other option? If those are some obstacles, look later in the chapter. What is is the only other option? In Luke 18, verses 37 through 43, look at what it says. Look at verse 35. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
Again, we have parallel passages. We know that the, the man's name was Bartimaeus. We assume that it was, assume that it was the same one. He was approaching Jericho. When he heard the crowd going by, the blind man, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth. Notice they did not say the Son of God. They did not say the Messiah. They did not say this miracle worker. They said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Verse 38, he called out, Jesus, Son of David. That is a messianic title. That's only to be used, the son of David was to be used of the Messiah. So he says, Jesus, Messiah, have mercy on me. Those who led the way rebuked him. That's probably Peter, James, and John, you know, the, the, the great disciples, the great apostles. Peter, James, and John, they rebuked him, told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He's, he's blind. What do you think? Lord, I want to see, he replied. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. What's the only other option? Well, first of all, acknowledge your condition. Acknowledge your condition. The man who called out to Jesus was blind. More and more today, we focus on softening the description of who we are. We soften that. We don't want labels. Don't label that kid that he's ADHD because if you do that, it, that label goes with him for the rest of his life. Don't label this person. Don't label that person. Don't label me as bald. I'm follically challenged. You know, don't label me. Now I'm bald. And the man was blind. Wasn't partially blind, wasn't legally blind, he was just blind, blind. Here's my label. I am a sinner. My name is George Knight and I am a sinner. And the truth is you could make the same statement, put your name in there and you are a sinner. It's not because of the number of wrong things you've done. It's because the nature of who you are is that you are a sinner. You have a sin nature. And the truth is we have the potential, we have the capacity within us to commit every sin imaginable and even unimaginable. I'm a sinner. And you are a sinner. And we need to acknowledge that. There's a verse of one of my favorite hymns that says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul. If you know it, sing the chorus. It is well. With my soul, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but all, is nailed to the cross. Joseph Stoll, in a little book called Loving Christ, says... That, that to love Christ demands getting a realistic view of our desperately fallen condition and embracing a fresh glimpse of the extensive mercy and grace of God. Making this shift is not easy. 
to embrace a fresh glimpse of the extensive mercy and grace of God. Do you realize how desperate that we really are? Isaiah 64, 6 says it this way. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The, the term filthy rags literally means the most disgusting thing that you could imagine. We would probably translate that today, use toilet paper. All of, our, all of the things that we do good are worth no more than used toilet paper. We all, shri- we all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. This time of year, we see what happens to the leaves as they crumble, as they, as they drop we have the same stability of leaves that have fallen from the tree in autumn that, have, that, are, are, that are just blown through the, the, the yards one after another. We were having some people over. We had the staff get together uh, Friday night, had a great Christmas party, and, and I wanted the backyard to look great, so I got the, you know, the little blower out, blew all the... I, I love that thing. It's like a tornado. You got all the leaves. I, every leaf was gone in my yard. I did it about noon, and 4 o'clock I looked up, and they were all back again. Everybody else's trees had bled into my yard. All those extra leaves from... No, I'm just kidding. We have the same stability of a leaf that's been detached from a tree. Acknowledge your condition. If you want to love Jesus Christ, if you want to know what to love about him, then you have to acknowledge who you are. Number two, ask for help. The blind man called for help, and he shushed. Can you imagine this? You know, son of David, and he calls out because Jesus and the entourage are already going. By this time, we know that there are probably dozens, if not hundreds of people. And he's, Jesus, son of David, son of David. And, and I can just hear Peter, listen, dude, you didn't have an appointment with this guy. He is not here to say, you know, you're on the edge of Jericho. This is not a great place to be. You're down in the desert place. You need to get up to Jerusalem. If you really want to see Jesus, maybe we can make an appointment I could just hear them doing that because that's what I would do. And Jesus stops. Why would Jesus ask him what he wanted? Mark tells us that he was a beggar. There's a time in Acts when, when uh, Peter and John are walking into the temple and a man says, silver, do you have silver? And, and Peter says, I don't have any silver, but what I do have I'll give to you. And this particular man was a beggar. He was lame and he, and he lifts him and he walks for the first time in his life. And the Lord knew what the man wanted, but he wanted everybody else to know what the man wanted because the man could have been asking for silver, he could have been asking for money, could have been asking for a handout, and what he wanted more than anything was the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, to take care of the blindness in his life. And sometimes I think when the Lord comes to us and says, what do you want, we respond, Jesus, we want you and money, or Jesus, we want you and a good job. Je- we want Jesus and friends. We want Jesus and a spouse, Jesus and a good self-image, Jesus and fun. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with money or a good job or friends or a spouse or self-image or fun. There's nothing wrong with that. But when we begin to pursue, G- pursue Jesus and anything, we miss the big thing. And we begin to, to pursue all the wrong things, and we miss Jesus in it. Is that a real relationship? In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 33, 3, it says, Call to me, and I will answer you, and I will tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. If you want to love Jesus, if you want to know what to love about Jesus, ask him. Ask him to, to fill your heart with love. Ask him 
to take away the pain. Ask him to, to, to cut through that stuff that you've been pursuing and, and to separate it out so that you're pursuing Jesus Christ and only him. See, if you're physically blind, it's not a big deal. I mean, it, it makes common sense. It's, it's perfectly logical for us to come to the only person who has the cure and ask for the cure. But when we're spiritually blind, we think somehow we're going to be able to get through it. We have dog issues at our house. Last night about 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, Bo, because he got a haircut and he's got shorter hair now, he was cold and he was up on our bed as he normally is and he kept snuggling up closer and closer to me. Till finally I'm on the edge of the bed trying to wrap the sheet around me and this little 12-pound dog is pushing me off the bed. And finally, I just went and grabbed another cover, went into the other room, got on the, on the couch, and I slept the last hour or two because this 12-pound dog pushed me out of bed. Now, I'm big enough I could have just picked him up and moved him. But I think also the Lord wanted me to, while I couldn't get back to sleep, I turned the light on and began to read the Bible. And as I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, I want to stand up and be honest. And I want to tell the people where my heart is. And the truth is, I want more of Jesus in my life. I didn't hear it audibly, but I think he said, I want that too. He can use anything, but you have to ask him, Lord, would you be more real? Lord, would you be more powerful? Lord, would you be more healing? Lord, would you cut through all this other stuff and can I just see who you are to live for you? Ask for help. Here's the last one. See with new eyes. The Greek is so simple here. I mean, sometimes when we get a translation, all the translations good in the NIV, the New American Standard, the New King James, they're all good translations. But sometimes it's, it's too wordy. And the Greek literally says, Jesus, uh, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do? And literally it says in the Greek, Lord, the man responds back, two words, to see. What do you want? to see. And literally in the Greek, there's one word response from Jesus. And he just says, see. And he did. There was no mud on his eyes. There was no prayer over him. There was no going back, back and forth. It is this man who has not been able to see before. When Jesus says, see, he could. For the first time, Someone blind could see. And we think it's so tough and we make it so difficult and, and we come and we want to go through all these prayers and did I pray the right prayer? And the Lord says, what do you want? And when you say, Lord, I want salvation. Lord, I want you in my life. Lord, I want to follow you. That's how simple it is. And he says, it's done. Do it. What I think is amazing is he didn't go home. This man's been begging on the edge of Jericho. When's the last time he saw, if ever, his family, his mother or his father? We don't know how old, how young he is. Did he have children? Did he have a wife? Was there a place for him to go? It says that he turned immediately and followed 
Jesus. That's what the rich young man was supposed to do, and the blind man does it instead. And, and he comes and he goes after Jesus. There's a new direction, a new focus in his life. Gordon Mote has been with us a couple of times. He's, a, he's blind. He's a pianist. He has played for the Gaither Vocal Band. He is an incredible man. And I love to watch him play because he, ha- he holds his hands all wrong, and yet he somehow just plays the, the tar out of the piano. I love to watch him playing the piano. He's coming, by the way, next Christmas. We've already booked him for a Christmas concert next year at the beginning of December. But one of my favorite things in one of the Gaither videos that he is always playing these jokes. And one day they have him on a busy, busy street, this blind man directing traffic. And he's got his hands going and he's directing traffic. And I love that. Gordon Mote wrote a song about his wife. He met her at Belmont University where they were going to school. And the song says, if, you could, if they could see you through my eyes, they'd know where the real beauty lies. Deep inside your heart, who you really are, if they could see you through my eyes. Because Gordon has experienced a wife that he's never seen, but he's experienced the beauty of how she lives with him and loves him and supports his ministry. They have, I think, three children together. A wonderful life. And he said, if you could see my beautiful wife through my eyes, you'd see what beauty really is. Sometimes we need to learn from the blind guys. Isaiah 42 says this. Here's my servant. It's a prophecy of the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. What do you love the most about Jesus? Is it the beauty of who he is in the core, in the essence? You know what I love the most about Jesus? I love the the most about Jesus that he thinks that I'm beautiful. He sees through who I am to what he made me to be. And that he knows that deep inside me there's something that he can take and fashion into something that's wonderful and beautiful and majestic and fantastic. I'll close with this true story. Over 35 years ago, our daughter was born. Liz is her name, Liz Myrick. Now it was Liz Knight, Elizabeth, but it became Liz immediately. Liz was the, the second of our children. Chris did not sleep well at night. Liz slept quite well. At least as far as I know, what I know, I went to sleep. I didn't care, you know. But occasionally I would, I would wake up and Kathy would say, can you go and get Liz? And, and I would get her and I would rock her. And for some reason she kind of seemed to like my voice. And, and I would sing these silly songs. Sometimes I'd sing, you have a daisy on your toe. It is not real. It does not, you know, it's just silly songs. I would sing silly kid songs and nursery rhymes and stuff. But there was one song that was that's made especially for children. I'm sure it was, it was recorded for children. It's You Are So Beautiful, Joe Cocker. You are so beautiful to me. You are so beautiful to me, can't you see? You're everything that I long for. You're everything that I need. You are so beautiful to me. Night after night, after I sang it a few times and we would take turns taking them to bed, and Liz would say, sing it, Daddy. 
sing it, Daddy. And I'd sing the song again, and she'd say, sing it again. One night, I remember, I decided I would sing it as many times as she kept asking. And finally, after 12 times, I said, honey, I can't sing anymore. You know, she was a little girl. She grew up. She met a wonderful guy named Sam. They got married. She came to me, and she said, you know, Dad, I want you to dance at my wedding. I said, well, first of all, I'm a Baptist. Some people might look badly at that, but that's not really my issue. The other issue is I really don't have any rhythm as far as dancing. I'm not a good dancer. She said, Dad, you just sway back and forth. This is the only thing I want you to do at my wedding is just dance with me. How are you going to tell your daughter no on that? And I said, what are we going to dance to? And she said, "It's, it's just a song. You'll know it. And I'm out on the floor. You are so beautiful to me. That's a song that she had for me, and it went, went on way too long because we were just weeping on this dance floor. Fast forward one more time. Last summer we had her son Lincoln. We're out at the beach. He's been in the salt water too long. He's got Down syndrome, he doesn't know how to communicate it, and he was chafed and raw, and he, he just, he could hardly stand to walk, and it was miserable, and yet he loved the ocean, and he wanted to be back in the waves, and we kept telling him, Lincoln, you have to go, and then of all things, on the last day, we wanted family pictures, and so we, he had to get dressed in dry, ugly, horrible things for him, because they were dress clothes, and we went down the beach, and he could see the ocean, but he couldn't get in it, and he couldn't express it, and he was frustrated, and he was mad. And I could tell that he was going to have a bad day and we weren't going to get any pictures. So I picked him up and I was walking him down the beach and I was patting him on the back. I said, you know, I was singing, you know, you are my sunshine and all these other songs. And I'm patting on the back and it won't settle him down. And I began to sing, you are so beautiful to me. And he just went limp. And he began to pat my back. I didn't even know that he knew the word, but he said, ing it, ing it. And I knew what he meant, and I sang it again. Then I look up, my daughter is seeing us. She, she said, you just ruined my mascara. Pictures will be lousy. I love the fact that I'm the Down syndrome boy that God picked up. And I was ravaged by sin, and I was devastated by what I'd done. And he picked me up and he said, you are so beautiful to me. Would you bow for prayer? Father, I love you. And I love your son. I love the fact that you sing over us. As we're sleeping, when we've messed up, when we're broken, when we're devastated, Lord, I love the fact that you love us. When there's no reason, no rhyme, no future in it, it seems, for you, but you just love us. You loved us enough to come to this earth as a baby, to grow and to die, to live and to love. Oh, Father, how could you love us that much? 
I don't know, but I love that about you. Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know that love, well, they've heard about it, but they've never experienced it. Father, if there's someone here who maybe has wandered away from that love and they've gotten into orbit around Jesus, but they need to come back to him. Father, if there's someone who just needs to admit the condition they're in and ask for help. Father, if there's just somebody that needs to pray, bring them to the front. Work on their heart. Father, help them to realize that we're all broken. We're all sinners. And only you can fix it. Only you can make the blind to see. So do that in us today, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing this song as we stand together. If you have a need, come. You can sit on the front. Along here, someone will come and pray with you. As we stand together, sing.